Welcome to the Rhino Daily Podcast, the daily podcast for sharp entrepreneurs. You'll hear insights and ideas from the world's top entrepreneurs and thought leaders designed to help you increase your profits and improve your lifestyle. Now, now here's your host, Steve Cypress. Sunday, fun day, July 14th, 2019. Steve Cypress here, and I was contacted by a whole bunch of old friends and family uh, about yesterday a blackout occurring in New York City. Now, it was a small one and a short one, and you know, I haven't checked or looked on the news, but I'm guessing there likely wasn't much. Uh, looting and violence and all that kind of stuff just because of the location. It happened kind of in Midtown and the Upper West Side, which are uh, heavily policed uh, areas, nice areas, um, affluent, that kind of stuff. Uh, But it brought back memories. Um, Now, the first uh, New York City blackout when I was just a kid, um, we had just moved just outside of the, of the city into the suburbs, and so we weren't personally affected, but I do remember hearing about it. I remember as we went out and looked outside in New York City at the darkness, it was a, a crazy sight to see. Uh, but the next one, the summer of 1977, amazingly on the same date, I couldn't forget it because it was July 13th, 1977. I don't remember what day of the week it was specifically, but I know it was a weekday, not a weekend. And uh, I was working in Madison Square Garden. I was this, uh, in the summer, and uh, World Team Tennis was the event that night. And World Team Tennis did not get a big uh, attendance, big enough uh, for the most part to be held in the actual Madison Square Garden. It was held downstairs in what was known as the Felt Forum, named after a donor who donated funds to build the thing. And so they held minor events down there, like Golden Gloves Boxing and uh, some uh, kind of Sesame Street shows, things like that. And World Team Tennis, for the most part, they set it up down there. And uh, it's an arena that uh, it's still there. It seats around 4,500 or so. So it's not a small thing by any stretch, but compared to Madison Square Garden, it seats over 19,000. It's the minor venue. And I remember that we, you know, there's only one kitchen, only one headquarters for the vendors. I was a food vendor walking around the seats in Madison Square Garden, in my high, one of my high school jobs. My favorite one, the most fun one. Will is here, great senior. And, um, uh, you know, we had to go all, it fell for him, it was so inconvenient. We almost never worked those events. I mean, we had to go all the way upstairs and get stuff and go back down. What we usually did was we worked the Felt Forum when there was another event going on. So when there was an event upstairs, a Knicks game, a Ranger game, a concert, uh, you know, a wrestling match, uh, they were live in there once a month. Um, World Cup every four years was on the big screen TVs in there. Whenever there was a, uh, the circus certainly was in there for 160 something shows every year, 10, 12 weeks straight. 
that's usually when we would work the felt form. It was like manager would pick a few of us and say, hey, take some stuff down to the felt form and work down there. And we were like, oh, bummer. You know, I, I'm, I'm working up here in the main event, but you know, that's what we did. He didn't send down the bottom people. There's a little lesson for you in management. You don't send your, your bottom dwelling sales performers to go do something new or test something or do something extra. You send the top performers to do it, and sure enough, we were we were able to be at the top in sales at the main event and cash in some extra bucks from the downstairs event at the same time. We just worked a little harder, and the manager knew that, even though we didn't. We complained about it, but I do remember I was in the felt forum when the lights went out. Now, when the lights went out, it was World Team Tennis, which, by the way, the New York... Oh, by then they were called the New York Apples. I almost said the New York Sets because World Team Tennis in those days, I think it's back again, but it was only around for a few years in the mid-70s. And they started out as the New York Sets because, of course, you had the New York Mets, the New York Nets, the New York Jets. They named it the New York Sets for tennis. And then they were like, that's a ridiculous name. And they had some kind of contest. And the, uh, the fans came up with the New York Apples. And for the last couple of years there, before the league disbounded, they were the New York Apples two years, I believe, 76 and 77, if I get that right. And the stars of 77, if I remember, of course, Billie Jean King was on the team. I think she was also the coach. And uh, Tom Ocker was the big shot uh, man on the team, I believe. Uh, Sandy Mayer had, was also, I think he'd been a big star the year before. But anyway, Tom, I mean, it's just amazing, by the way, to watch these pros warm up. They do things in warm-ups, like in all the sports, like the home run derby. You watch these guys hit 40 home runs, you know, in five minutes, where they don't hit 40 home runs the whole year. Uh, and uh, you see them make ridiculous throws from the outfield and, you know, catch balls behind the back and, and whatever in practice. Same in basketball. When you watch the All-Star game, they're throwing the ball behind the back through the legs you know, throw it off the backboard, no look, boom, bang, whatever. That's what World Team Tennis was. We would watch the warm-ups, and I just remember watching Tom Ocker, uh, top man, not by, not by any stretch, not the top man in the world. But as John McEnroe famously said a few years ago, and people, of course, took it like an insult. It's like this women's soccer team now. They take it like an insult. They don't get extra the same pay as the men in the World Cup, like the Women's World Cup brings in like one-tenth the revenue of the Men's World Cup. I don't even think, not even. And as far as the ability, it's not even, not even one of those, not even a superstar on the team could even make the, sit on the bench for any men's team other than maybe the worst men's team in the, in the world. But of course, it's not about the, the, the quality of the play and the skill. It's about the bucks. It's business. It's about the money. It's about how many people buy souvenirs, how many people watch the games, uh, all the attention that's given to it. And unfortunately for the women right now, the Men's World Cup dwarfs the Women's World Cup. So I know they want equal pay and all that BS, but this isn't some Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, Barack Obama, you didn't build that la-la world. This is reality where uh, money talks and the numbers matter. And so, of course, they don't deserve equal pay with the men. And... Uh, Similarly, their skill is like not even in the same hemisphere as the men. I remember Tom Ocker would warm up. He's one of the top, I don't know, probably one of the top 20 men at the time. 
but he would warm up on one side of the court and there would be two top women on the other side of the court warming up with him and he would cover the doubles uh, portion of the court for anyone that knows tennis when you play doubles the court is I think six feet wider like there's three feet on each side and he would cover the whole court on one side and of course they would cover the whole court on the other side and it would be a fair match I mean he would be smashing the ball and they'd make him run from side to side didn't matter he ran from side to side and that was one thing they do in the warm-up he to get a real good warm-up and he would warm up again one against two now if it was one against two men he'd have no chance but one against two women it was fun to watch and then he would do things all the players would do things like hit it behind the back and uh and hit overheads like blindfolded uh they play lefty and still smash the ball uh, he like hit it, uh, you know, serve it off the side of the racket, and it would still go like you know, 80 miles an hour across the net. You know, they do amazing things in the warm, so it's fun to watch. But I remember when the lights went out, and it was strange. All the lights, however, didn't go out. I mean, by its nature, the felt form is kind of in the basement. It's not technically in the basement of the garden. It's in the like on the first or second floor in the main garden. By the way, the floor is on the fifth floor. If you don't know, the garden is like a nine-floor building, and the main floor is like on the fifth floor. And our our um, our uh, lot or the third floor, I think it was on the third floor, and so were the locker rooms. But anyway, we would go down to the Feld Forum, and there's no outside windows or anything like that, and so they had emergency lights came on. So it's not like it was pitch dark, but suddenly the lights went off, and a few sparse emergency lights came on, and everyone was like, "What the heck is going on?" And I remember later reading that what had happened was, you know, there's no internet in those days, so we read in the paper the next day. There was no 24-hour news channels. It was another, you know, it wasn't this unhinged craziness that you have today just because news was a couple of times a day, 6 p.m., 11 p.m., that was it. You got a newspaper in the morning, and maybe an afternoon edition, but you didn't go crazy and bonkers because of Twitter and Facebook and and 24-hour uh, news channels that just got to fill the air with hype and, and, and fear and all kinds of, you know, craziness going on. So we read about the cause of the blackout was uh, um, lightning strikes. There was a couple of different lightning strikes in different areas, and when they hit, like the transformers overloaded the other areas, and the whole thing went off all throughout the city. And a problem was they kept trying to turn it on too soon. And so they tried to turn it on in like the first like 20 minutes or half an hour. I remember the lights went on and everyone cheered. Oh, the lights, because everyone's waiting, thinking, you know, this won't last long. And the lights went on and then in like 30 seconds they went off again because they overloaded all the circuits, putting everything on at once. And that happened a couple of times. And then it was like, that's it. And they just made an announcement, everyone go home. And meanwhile, everyone couldn't go home because cars were parked in garages, and in New York, probably in lots of big cities, but uh, the garages have vertical elevators holding all the cars up. Even the outdoor garages are known to have cars going four or five cars up in the air. You see that a lot in marinas, too, with boats. In the, you know, in the winter, they put the boats like four or five high on a lift. Well, that's how it is with cars in New York, and so it couldn't get the cars down off the lifts, couldn't go home. Uh, also, people that lived in New York, a lot of those buildings, you cannot open the windows. They, for safety reasons, they you can't anything you know above however many floors the windows just do not open. So nobody has any 
chance of opening them up and, you know, by mistake falling out or a cat falling out or a baby or anything like that. So, you know, without air conditioning, it was just unlivable. So the whole thing was craziness. And I remember I lived in New Jersey at the time with my dad, and uh, all I had to do was get my car and carefully drive through the city where there were no lights and there's craziness going on. And in 1977, when this happened, by the way, um, for those of you from New York, you might remember, that was the most violent, crazy summer in New York history. And so it was uh, extra craziness because of this blackout. That was the summer of a serial killer on the loose for pretty much the whole summer named David Berkowitz, who was known as Son of Sam. And they've made movies and TV shows about it and whatever. This guy was terrorizing the city and murdering like 40 or 50 people, mostly young women. But if there happened to be a guy in the car seat next to her, he would kill both of them, of course. And so all summer, people that were going out, it was like, oh, go out in packs, especially women. Like, do not walk down the street alone. Walk with four, five, six, uh, you know, but even... Guys, I mean, we didn't know what was going on. So all we knew was there's a killer out there all over, the, and he was all over the city, seemingly, that's why they didn't catch him until he killed like 40, 50 people or whatever. He was seemingly randomly all over the city killing people. So that was a crazy scene, and we just kept thinking in the dark with everything off, and the cops all, you know, pre, uh, you know, uh, um, whatever the word is, they were all concentrating elsewhere. Uh, this would be time for criminals to run wild, which they did. Looting was massive. I mean, if you probably can find it somewhere on the internet and read about this thing, unbelievable burning and looting, like like one or two mile stretches in bad areas of the city, like Bed-Stuy or Hell's Kitchen or whatever, Harlem, like they were just burning whole blocks and like dozens of businesses being looted and burnt. And I remember the story about one car dealership where they, they robbed like 50 cars from the car dealership, but the whole city was up in flames. It was uh, anarchy, it was a nightmare, it was craziness. So I was, you know, in a little trepidation, a little fear, a little hesitation of like even getting out of there. I remember hanging out for a while with the staff, guys that lived in the city. So they knew their car was in a garage that they couldn't get it out. And uh, they were like, well, refrigerators are out. All the food's going bad, so start eating. So we were like eating ice cream and they were drinking beer and they're like, beer's gonna go flat, ice cream's gonna melt, like, might as well have a party. And we just like played cards and hung out and ate and drank. And uh, I was slightly underage at 17, so I wasn't drinking beer. But I was hanging out and having a blast with these guys, and we're wondering, and everyone thought, as always, it's going to end any minute now. Patricia's here. Good seeing you. And, uh, and it didn't. I don't think the lights came back on until the next morning or something. So eventually I was like, all right, I'll get out there. And luckily it's only a few blocks from where I usually parked around uh, 9th or 10th till I can get into the Lincoln Tunnel and get to New Jersey. And, uh, and get to where there were lights. And there were lights on in the tunnel because they are emergency lights, but you know, no traffic lights and people, just wildness all over the place. And so uh, it was interesting uh, to say the least. Uh, now about that summer of 77, that violent, crazy summer, uh, burning out all of the South Bronx and murders and 
at a, at a height, an all-time high, and crime at an all-time high in the city. I remember I graduated high school the next year and scramoosed out of New York and went up to Boston, where I lived for about 17 years or so. I remember later on, I made a beeline for an event when I saw that Curtis Sliwa was going to be speaking at it. It's when I was living in Chicago, only about 15 years ago. He was the founder of the Guardian Angels in New York City. This is a group of vigilante volunteers that would wear their their berets, their whatever they're called, kind of hats, and uh, they would be trained in martial arts and self-defense and defense of others and whatever, but they were never armed, and they would ride the subways and walk the streets and protect average citizens. That's what they were known to do, guardian angels. Curtis Lewa and his wife at the time, they later divorced, but they founded the thing. And I remember when I saw that he was speaking to this event in Chicago, I made a beeline. I've done that a lot of times. Uh, that happened to be in the city I was living in. But I've gotten on planes and paid for plane and hotel and admission uh, and food and all the costs just to get to an event to meet one person. Now, the business lesson there, I highly recommend you do. There's a reason I uh, became one of the most and still am one of the most well-connected people in the entrepreneur uh, field. Uh, and uh, this case was no exception. I went to meet Curtis Lee because I just had to tell him. He gave his talk about the summer of 77, founding the Guardian Angels and how crazy it was. And I just had to go up and congratulate him for the guts to stay there in New York and to say, my city is burning and I'm going to be a part of the problem. Well, I tucked tail between my legs and ran away. I said, uh, hey, I ain't dealing with this. I'm out of here. And I left New York and went to Boston. I told him that. And so I just got to commend you. And there's another lesson there. And I've remembered that for years. Like, you have a choice in business. There's always ups and downs, just like in cities. There's ups and downs. I know right now you're thinking that American cities are, they're certainly on a downswing, many of them. Big homeless problems and uh, uh, you know, big unemployment problems and crime problems and all kinds of stuff going on and f certainly financial problems. Chicago that I mentioned, Detroit, you know, cities that have way too many unfound, unfunded pension promises that they made the city workers. They're on the verge of bankruptcy, you know, happening all over the country or all the big homeless stuff happening on the West Coast where the weather's nice. But, you know, things go through ups and downs. And so when things were down in New York, uh, I scramoosed. Uh, when things are down in your business, you have a choice. You can do like I did when I was a teenager in New York and say, I'm out of here, this thing sucks, and go find something else to do. Or set up the same business in another physical location, find somewhere else to go, either way. Uh, or you can do like Curtis Lewa did and said, okay, this is my city. In your case, you'd say, this is my business, and I'm going to stick it out, and I'm going to turn it around, and I'm going to fight this downturn, and I'm going to make it happen. So, now I've done that in business. I've also not fought and lost businesses, including my first multi-million dollar business, my, my fantasy sports game company that I built to the largest in the industry, and then, you know, a couple of tough things happened, and a baseball strike, and a lockout, and, uh, you know, big cash flow problems, and I gave up, just like I'd given up when summer of 77 was just crazy in New York. 
with the son of Sam, the blackout, all the looting and murders and all, all kinds of stuff going on. Um, but it's always a choice. You have a choice. You can flee and leave. You can give up and go do something else. Certainly that's commendable, by the way. Um, you know, there's a saying, the easiest way to complete a project is to just cancel it there. Now it's no longer unfinished. Just, you know, that was an interesting idea, but I'm not doing it anymore. Move on. This whole persistence thing is way overrated. Like persisting in the wrong thing is a big mistake. Um, but, uh, or you can be part of the solution and stick it out. And that's going to be tough. That's a much tougher road, but there are big rewards. So for Curtis Lewa, it wasn't like lots of money. He wasn't getting paid. It was a whole volunteer thing. But he then, you know, wrote books and had documentaries done. And hopefully if he knows someone like me that knows how to cash in on someone's personal story, he cashed in on it and made a lot of money from it. Uh, the founding of the Guardian Angels and that whole summer of 77 and 78 and those tough times in New York. So... I'm remembering that now when I saw that blackout yesterday. Only lasted a few hours in a nice area, so it wasn't anything like 77. But uh, I don't know if they've made movies about 77 blackout, but holy moly, it was a war zone in New York City, especially that night. Incredible burning, looting, crime, destruction, just no respect for anything opportunity-minded criminals, non-criminals turning into criminals because the opportunity pre presented itself and like totally crazy. So that's my memories here today. One day after the 42nd anniversary of the blackout in New York City, July 13th, 1977. Then we had another one, July 13th, 2019. Who knew? That'll do it for Sunday Fun Day. I don't see any questions, comments, concerns, other than people saying hello. Thank you for being here. Hope you enjoy your Sunday as well as another spectacularly beautiful day. By the way, monsoon season here in the Phoenix Scottsdale area has officially been on for weeks, and it hasn't rained at all yet. So just like I just talked about, we know the storm is coming. So a lot of people, it's pretty appropriate, a lot of people do not stay here for the summer. They head up north to visit friends, family, to do whatever. Uh, I just was talking with a client who started a business up north in the state of Washington uh, just so that she can be up there pretty much for the summer and come back down here for the winter. A lot of entrepreneurs done that, uh, do that. I've done that in the past. I highly recommend it. It's very smart. Strategically set up businesses and locations that are up north for the summers and in warmer, or here, hotter climates uh, for the winter. And so there you go. There's that choice you have. You can say, I'm not hanging out where it's going to be 115 degrees every day for a few weeks and monsoon flooding rains coming in every night. I'm going to scram moose out of there and be a snowbird. I'll come down for the winter and I'll head back up for the summer. So we're not doing that. We're here other than traveling to events that I host or speak at or attend. Uh, so, uh, but the rains have not begun yet. The heat has not yet the rain. And uh, Patricia said hello and now says good night. Good night to you as well. Or buenas noches to people that speak multiple languages. That's a, almost the extent of my Spanish. Uh, it took seven years of Spanish through middle school, high school, and college. 
and uh, don't speak it very well, but I can uh, watch and understand movies in Spanish and TV shows, and uh, I can even read, but uh, I never spoke a lot. Oh, and now Patricia's speaking English and says, yeah, I'm so glad I haven't woken up to my patio furniture in the pool. Exactly. You know, uh, we, you know we've, we're up here in the mountains where we got extra wind, and I'm like, you know, it's kind of breezy and windy even on normal days. I'm like, we gotta remember to take down all these umbrellas and move everything aside, even the iron furniture gets tossed around like toothpicks in the monsoon season, especially I'm sure for it's gonna be our first monsoon season up here in the mountains and I'm sure it's gonna be fun and crazy. See, now there's the attitude. When tough times hit and craziness happens, you can look at it as, oh my goodness, it's gonna be terrible. Or you can say, you know, this is gonna be interesting and uh, let's see what happens. I had the former uh, uh, viewpoint uh, with my uh, teenage years in New York City. I was like, I'm out of here. Uh, others said, okay, like Curtis Lee once said, okay, this is kind of crazy. Let's do something new. Let's start a whole new thing and be guardian angels with no weapons and take our life into our hands and ride the subway with people with knives and guns all over the place and walk the streets of Harlem with no weapons. And, and you know, he's still around, so he made it. So he said, you know, I'm up for the adventure. What about you and your business? When tough times hit, do you sit there and lament and cry and moan how tough it is? Or do you say, you know what, this is the adventure that I went in for when I said I'm gonna own my own business. You know, you have more freedoms than 90% of people. You call your own shots, you're in charge of all your own destiny. I know there's some, there's always restrictions and laws and this and that and whatever, but man, uh, we have it made. It's just an adventure. It's not a steady paycheck as if, as if there is anything. I mean, those days are gone, aren't they? Of like, you're with one company for 40 years and you get a golden watch and you retire. Those days really happen, so we don't have it. You know, a, a nine to five workers have it a little crazy too. So you might as well have all the advantages of having your own business as well. And if you want help with that, starting, growing, expanding, that's especially fun for me, scaling and exploding a business, go to helpfromsteve.com. We'll get on the phone and I'll help you do it. I have a lot of fun doing it. I have a lot of ways to do it. We'll have fun. We'll make money. And that's it for Sunday Funday. Probably my longest Sunday fun day video of all time in the two and a quarter years I've been doing a Facebook Live video every single day. Speaking of which, God willing, I'll be back tomorrow on Direct Mail Monday, and I hope you will join me then. Thank you, Patricia, and everyone else watching live, everyone on the replay. Catch you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on the Rhino Daily Podcast, the daily podcast for sharp entrepreneurs hosted by Steve Cypress. Join us tomorrow for another exciting episode designed to help you increase your profits and improve your lifestyle. Also, go to rhinodaily.com for more great business exploding tips, strategies, and tactics from the world's top experts. Plus, snag your free copy of Money Making Monthly Magazine. Goodbye.